Please subscribe. Keep community radio alive. Peace. Enjoy. Green Left Weekly Radio. There is one newspaper that is independent of powerful interests, and that's Green Left Weekly. It's a people's voice committed to human and civil rights, environmental sustainability, democracy and equality. It presents ideas mainstream media won't. It's the leading source of local, national and international news analysis and discussion and debate to strengthen the anti-capitalist movements. It exposes the lies and distortions of the power brokers and helps us to better understand the world around us. Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation. That's all right, you relax. Um, um, and, you know, that I like to acknowledge that you know sovereignty was never ceded, um, and then, you know free is being broadcast to you from stolen land, and that always was and always will be um, Aboriginal land. Good. Alright, so um, we have a bit of a pretty um, packed program today. Um, we have at least three interviews. We're going to be talk, speaking to some uh, uh, Rachel Evans, who we've had previously as a guest on our program. We'll just get a photo in to just have a bit of a quick discussion about what's happening in terms of the equal marriage movement, um, the fight for equal marriage, especially in light of this plebiscite that looks like it's going to go ahead and it looks like it's going to be coming to a post um, box near you. Um, basically... For listeners, I'd like to encourage, probably Rachel will also mention this, um, that if you haven't enrolled to vote, I encourage you to enrol now, otherwise you won't be able to participate in this sham. Yeah, you got the grand enrol in the electoral roll thing, yeah. Yeah, so on the, you'll have to go to the AEC website um, to figure that out. Um, and then we'll also be featuring... Um, oh, sorry, I... I wasn't the mic wasn't on when I said that. Alright, so um I'll also we'll also be featuring um Apologies listeners, the mic that Jacob was picking on wasn't on. So we keep going. Yep. Um just like to uh mention that we have a number of guests. Um we have Rachel Evans who'll be talking about the equal marriage um um equal fight for equal marriage, um especially in light of, you know, this plebiscite that's coming ahead. Um, and then we'll be talking to Fred Fontes about, you know, what's happening in Venezuela. And then we'll be talking to Zebedee Parks, who will be, who is the National Co-Convener of Resistance, Young Socialist Alliance. And he'll be talking about this, um, upcoming conference that's coming up in the next weekend, Radical Ideas. Yes, it's a conference for young people with lots of, um, fire and fury, like, <laughs> um, Trump has said. And let's hope the young people will, 
discuss um, interesting um, topics that are in the, in the in the agenda of the conference, and it's also on Facebook. Please register if you want to come. Um, it's not expensive, so have a look at it and come. If you you won't be bored, that's for sure. Hmm. Okay, so um, just in terms of um, some recent news, um, I just came back um, last night from from a vigil for a uh, asylum seeker refugee who died on mm, on Nauru. So uh, well, and um, basically there was a vigil held in Melbourne. Um, his name was Hamed, and um, you know it was a good good crowd, and you know over probably over a hundred people showed up. Um, to show, to express their condolences and um, solidarity with um, with Ahmed, um, who you know is unfortunate, like you know another murder by the basically the the Australian's terrible government policy on refugees. That's right, and Dutton is bearing the the um, burden of all these people who are tortured, mentally ill, and totally you know devastated because of the way. The Australian government is treating refugees in Manus and Nauru. Just unbelievable. Hmm. Um, and I also want to kind of flag, this is something else happening in Sydney right now. Um, but in Sydney, um, currently there is this homeless camp that has been set up around on Martin Place. Um, it's become this kind of symbol of kind of resistance um, um, for pe- for people who are homeless against, you know, and activists against, you know, the... Um, against the Mel- against the Sydney Council and the government, who is basically refusing to you know address this problem. Um, basically, a lot of the um, the ca- um, the mayor and you know the um, the state government is basically wanting to remove um, these homeless people who have established a bit of a community, like a tent a, city, isn't it? Yeah, a bit of a safe yeah. space for um, homeless people. Um, so that struggle is still you know going on. Um, there's been still the, the government still hasn't promised any anything to the people who are currently um, living at that density, apart from maybe um, this is probably what they offered to to people when they removed them off the Flinders Street, into, um, around on Flinders Street, temporary accommodation, no permanent housing or anything, um, which is really what this struggle is really about. This is kind of like a struggle for housing, um, for public ha- um, to demand is that, that you know, this homeless issue can't be, you know, slept, swept under the rug. It, you know, has to actually be addressed with actual solutions. That's right. So um, that that's just one thing um, to flag. And there was also, um, as far as I know, I don't know what's happening with it, but there's also there was also a push to uh, evict some tenants from a public housing uh, in Sydney. I think it's Millers Point. Um, there was a bit of an occupation, I think, a few days ago I'm uns- um, to basically resist the eviction. I'm unsure what's happening there, but, yeah, that's something to follow up on. Yeah, and the housing situation doesn't look much better here in Victoria because the state government, as we know, has um, announced that it's going to renew, supposedly, in inverted commas, um, uh, housing for people who are living already in public housing, um, supposedly to improve um, the buildings, which they have deliberately allowed to run down. So we have, I think, between 9 and 11 housing estates where the buildings are going to be pulled down and renewed, but they're going to be made into social and 
another word for that is community housing. They are actually misnomers because the um, conditions will change enormously for a start. Instead of um, three bedroom, there'll only be two bedrooms. So if you were at the moment living in a three bedroom apartment, you will not be able to return to those premises. And the other thing is your rent will go up because the building will be contracted out to or even transferred over to NGOs and even real estate agents who promise to charge less than 80% off market rent, which could be anything from three to four hundred um, dollars a week, which none, none of those current occupants can afford to pay. So that's a campaign that is, um, slowly, but it's gathering a bit of pace. And let's hope listeners will look out for areas where the, the, the campaign is started. Okay. Um, um, so we've got, we have at least a minute before our first next interview. interview. So yeah. I'll play, we'll quickly play a quick announcement and we'll get um, into that first interview. Okay. We will not negotiate with minor state of title government or anyone on, on our culture, on, on our land. You know, if people say, oh, you're going to finish up with nothing, well, then so be it. But at least our hearts will tell us that we did not sell out our country and our culture and heritage for a few scanty dollars. Subscribe to 3CR so that your dollars support Indigenous voices and the struggle for land justice. For Aboriginal people, the greatest grief of all is seeing the country destroyed. And somewhere along the line, we have to realise that we don't actually have the right to do that, that nothing we've ever done has given us the right to do that. Now, you know where I stand on this, because I'm so simple-minded, I think we've just got to admit that this is an Aboriginal country. Just do it. Okay. Uh, Tricia and um, to Radio. Good morning, listeners. Also, have just joined us, and we have Rachel Evans on the phone for the first interview. Yeah. So Rachel Evans is just to give a bit of background. She's a long-time um, activist for marriage equality. She's probably been campaigning for marriage equality since. Before, no, oh, I don't think that, that's the case, because I don't think she's that old. I was just about to say that she's probably been campaigning <laughs> for marriage equality since I was, um, since before I was born, but yeah, I was born in 1991. <laughs> <laughs> You're allowed to smack him, Rachel, when you see him. <laughs> hey, so, um, I guess what the first question, um, we want to ask you, Rachel, is, you know, what is kind of happening with, um, marriage equality, um, and what is happening with this plebiscite? Okay, yes, well, I was actually, I joined Resistance in 1991, Jacob, but oh. um, the marriage policy <laughs> issue wasn't really a thing back then. It really was a thing in 2004 um, when the Liberal Party under John Howard decided to change the Marriage Amendment Act to read that marriage was between a man and a woman exclusive of all others and ban same-sex marriage and, and put a stop to marriage equality. And so that's that's when the campaign really started, when that ban came Rachel, through. Rachel, just, just sorry, Rachel, John. just to interrupt you there. Tell me the, exactly how John Howard changed it, because I want to then compare to the mess that we are in at the moment. What did John Howard actually do to change the act to read as you stated before? 
Did he just sign a, a bill or did he sign it? It was a bill. It was legislation. So they had to put it to the Parliament Lower House and Upper House Senate. So that's and what he did? That's what he did. That's indeed what he did. That and was also, very simple. It was very simple and it was um, the Labor Party at the time prior, so it was changed in August the 13th, which was a Friday in 2004, and the Labor Party um, in around June 2004 came out and said, ah, oh, this is going to happen. They alerted the community to this potential bill because there was a, a lesbian couple in Canada who had gotten married and who wanted to come back to Australia, have it recognised through the courts. So the Liberal Party went, okay, well, we're going to, um, we're, we're not going to allow that ha- to happen. The courts might make a progressive ruling, so we're going to introduce this legislation. And, the, the, Labor Labor and Party, the, the Labor Party supported it? In June, the Labor Party didn't support it. They were saying, we're going to put it into cold storage or a Senate inquiry. They put it into a Senate inquiry, and the community was lulled into a false sense of security over the Labor Party position. Um, and then the Labor Party at the National Marriage Forum, which happened in July, I think, in 2004. No, sorry, sorry, Rachel, I'm talking about the time when John Howard actually legislated um, the, the, the law not to recognize any other union except marriages between a man and a, and a woman. This was in 2004, yes? That's right. Okay. That's right. Now, at that yeah. point of time, he had to put that particular legislation through the lower and upper house. And yeah. did the Labor Party and the Greens support it at that time? The Labor Party voted for it. And the when Greens? When they initially said they would not, they voted for it. They sold us out. Okay. And what about the Greens and other minor, minor parties at that time? They voted against it. Well, actually, the Greens went in the lower house. Um, and I'm pretty sure they, they were in the upper house. In the heart, yeah, they were in the Senate, yes. So, um, so they voted against it, absolutely. The Labor Party voted for it and, and, um, and we rallied outside the Labor Party headquarters in, here in Sydney, um, the weekend after they did that. And, um, and condemn them for it. So that's an interesting incident part of history no one talks about because the reality is the Labour Party then, which is 13 years ago, fully supported it. And now it's for their own political needs. And of course, you know, it, it, it so happens it, it's now reflecting some of the concerns and, and the views of the, the gay community, so to speak. Mm-hmm. Um, it's opportunism on their part, but, you know, we just have to clarify yeah. that before I move on because I'm really infuriated when the Labour Party flips its position so easily as a matter of convenience. That's right. But just to, just to go back to this, um, this National Marriage Forum, this was organised by ACL, Australian Christian Lobby Types, a whole bunch of right-wing Christians um, and 700 people at it, in which John Howard and Nicola Roxon were there. Nicola Roxon was the ALP Attorney General at the time. And um and she said, Well we support the marriage um the same sex marriage ban, we will support the changes to the Marriage Amendment Act and queers were called the moral terrorists of the twenty first century at this conference, unfit to raise children and psychologically disturbed. That is when we mm. realised that the Labour Party were not were not gonna follow through with their opposition and we moved and mobilised. But I mean the other thing is that people should not forget that the another betrayal happened in twenty eleven when we had the largest rally in rainbow rights history in this country, 10,000 people came from all over the country to march on the ALP convention, the national convention, to demand they change their platform, their p- political position, their, their party's position on marriage equality. Um, and we had this massive show of rainbow force 
the Labor Party changed their position and supported marriage equality, but allowed a conscience vote, which meant that we weren't able to get the bill through, of which there's been 22 since 2004, presented to Parliament. So there's not uh, there's so many bills that we could actually put and pass, but, um, but the Labor Party also did that. So we can't forget this history. Um, it really is the People's Power Movement that has forced the Labor Party to come out and obfuscate and confuse and, and appear like they are the People's um, Party. But really, for the community, they've been nothing but betrayal, betrayal and more betrayal. Mm. The the key thing here is that no one is talking about the fact that John Howard was able to find a clear path in putting the, the legislation through the houses as opposed to all this confusing plebiscite and referendum and, and whatever else they can think of, they can throw in to just confuse and, and utterly uh, diffuse the debate. Um, I don't understand why someone hasn't just put this to them. If you've done it in the past, what's stopping you from doing this again? Just because mm. you made a promise at, at the um, um, elections doesn't mean that you can't change your mind. You could change your mind every other thing. I mean, half the mm. time you forget the promises you make at the election campaigns. Mm. Um, this is a clear question that can be put, and no journalist has been, has been able to put this to any of the Labour Party, uh, Labour, uh, Liberal Party uh, representatives on about this, it it just baffles people. You know, it, it I don't know. Mm, it, it's just that's right. it's uh, the hypocrisy of it all. And it's I think the key thing here is to it allows the right a massive space to come in campaign and convince people, drag it out and and exhaust them to a level where you know what I don't really care what you do. It's almost like disengaging people from the discussion because one of the words I've heard used about this debate is boredom. People are sick and tired of this debate. They just want something done. They want action. Don't you, don't you mm. get that feel too? Mm, that's right. That's right. Agreed, agreed. I mean, the thing is that the referendum and the plebiscite and the postal vote, it's a delaying tactic. Mm. But what it is is that the Liberal Party leadership realises they're under significant pressure to show that they are doing something. Um, but, you know, it might cost Malcolm Turnbull his vote if he goes real hard and actually comes out and acts on his alleged support for marriage equality, which he, he decried he had mm. at the beginning of the election process, which, of course, he um, he betrayed us on as well. But the, the thing is that when we first started for campaigning, oh, campaigning for marriage equality in 2004, only 33% of the population supported us, and only a third of the rainbow rights community supported the campaign. Mm. So we've had to, from 33%, we are now at... 85% of young people, over 65% of adults, and over 55% of Christians support same-sex marriage, marriage equality. So that has been a huge shift mm. in the 13 years that we've been campaigning. There's been rallies, there's been occupations, there's been vigils, there's been trips to Canberra, there's been massive petition campaigns, ringing campaigns. This has been one of the key social movements in Australia, and that has shifted the balance in our favour. Of course, as well, the international situation with all these countries, one after the other, after the other, winning marriage equality again to the to the um, to the credit of the grassroots campaigners on the even, ground. So even Taiwan has it. <laughs> even Taiwan, that's right. It's just so that that means that there's all of this pressure on the Liberal Party. So they, you know, they, some of the MPs cracked and they forced it to the caucus on Monday, and and the uh, Leadership, the conservative leadership's response was 
plebiscite didn't get that, that through the Senate and then it was the postal vote, which is a complete, it's a non-binding vote and there's a High Court challenge. The High Court will hear the argument because the, the main argument is, well, actually, the Parliament itself has to ratify this. It has that's doesn't right. have to be ratified through Parliament. That's so right. that's the argument they're going to use in court. If we win that, then, you know, we're still at this juncture of, um, of demanding that Parliament put the bill past the bill. If the postal vote goes ahead, then what we're doing in September, people get their ballots. We're going to be launching this... Um, well, really, from now, we're launching a campaign for vote yes. Um, and then we'll see, the, we'll see the response. We'll win this. I'm absolutely 100% sure we'll get a smashing majority. And then that puts more political pressure on the parliament to put the bill and pass the bill. No one has actually talked about what if the postal vote, for a variety of reasons, and the specific one is that because some people are so angry with this, they said, look, we, I'm not going to even vote on this thing. What if the vote loses because of this sort of confusion and, and um, abs, you know, uh, absent um, voting or, or spoiled voting or whatever it is? Just let's take another scenario where the, the vote actually loses. Will that then still go through this, uh, the parliament? It won't, will it? Uh, I think I mean, there's no chance that the vote will lose. Um, I'll stake my reputation on it. But, um, but if the vote loses, then again, it's just a, another um, bit of a stalemate. So the whole postal vote plebiscite is just a delaying tactic anyway. Mm. Um, so, you know, then it just means that the campaign has a bit of a blow, but I mean, I, yeah, I'm not. I'm I'm absolutely confident that we'll win it, like we did in Ireland. The ref, the referendum in Ireland um, proved to be a real catalyst for the grassroots movement, and and really, I think is probably one of the most successful examples of a referendum in a in a grassroots. Can you can you speak closer to the to the phone, Rachel? We can't hear you clearly. Ah, uh, that's better. Yep, that's thanks. Yeah, the, the Irish referendum was a real highlight. So I actually, I've got a lot of confidence if we are able to get through and have this postal vote, the whole country will be talking about marriage equality and civil rights. Um, there, it, there will be a polarisation, of course, and, you know, we have to be very mindful of our very vulnerable young members of the community. It is very dangerous to be young and queer. You still get thrown out of your house. Um, if you come out to homophobic parents, of which there was a good um, discussion on this in the ABC program on Monday night, you also face very high rates of suicide, anxiety and depression. There was a very good recent study in the US between states that had marriage equality and states that did not, which showed that the queer community, LGBTI crew, um, suffered less anxiety and depression if they lived in a state with marriage equality. So, you know, being a second-class citizen does create anxiety. And for our young crew um, who are just coming to terms with their sexuality, it's a very dangerous period. So we are, we are very well aware that this is going to be, from the ACL crew and the Christian right, a real last-ditched attempt to, um, to slander young trans people in particular um, and queer youth. So we are, you know, we're very mindful of that. But that being said, I think that the positives of this postal vote campaign will outweigh the negatives. 
winning will also be very um, a very good thing for the community. But it also means that the community has organized big time to make sure that people who may not even agree with this whole strategy but vote because the right is highly organized. I mean, this whole debate has meant that Turnbull has has had to make concessions to the extreme right within the Liberal Party. Um, therefore, this campaign is is like dog's breakfast. But the right is organised in terms of voting against it. So that means the community on the ground and all the supporters have to be highly organised. Yes, we That's don't right. agree with your strategy, but we will vote. That's the thing that that worries me and our. Uh, People are going to be complacent, you know. That's um, it's just a, something that we need to be careful of, I think. Yeah, that's a yeah. very good point. It is a very good point. This is a fight, and like everything, we have to struggle for every inch of democratic space under this that's capitalist right. system. Mm. So this is very true. This is a battle, um, and we have to be very prepared and organised. Mm. I think this is actually also a very good chance for the different wings of the campaign to try and come together, unite, the crew that organise the rallies meets the Australian Marriage Equality. <coughs> Excuse me. Um, we really do need to have think tanks and tactical strategic discussions together about how to move and mobilise people for the yes vote. And that's going to be a challenge for us in the next few weeks. The other thing is that there's only um, a certain window for young people to enrol to vote. Um, and so in at Sydney University, of which I'm a, a student, the queers are organising um, enrol-to-vote stalls on Eastern Avenue, the main drag, and, um, and they're calling on other students to do the same in other campuses to turn the university's rainbow to get people enrolled. Um, and when the ballots come in, we'll do some mass um, voting all together. So I think this is good. It's a good um, indication that there's willingness in Wollongong. Some queers are organising a rally in three weeks. Um, that's just been pulled together in the last 24 hours in Sydney. There's um, a crew that have organised a Give uh, Turnbull a Spine rally and march to Canberra. So there's all of these things happening which indicates that the the very good instinct of the grassroots to mobilise our forces is, is rising to the fore. So I'm very confident um, that we'll be able to do this, but it is it is a fight. Okay, thanks. Thanks, Rachel. The line is not um, fantastic, but anyway, thank you so much for your insight. And we will keep an eye on this. If there's any developments in, in relation to national campaigns, um, we'll be grateful if you are able to talk to that. And if you could keep an eye on that, that would be fantastic. Um, just before, um, just for listeners' information, um, there will be um, a rally happening on the Saturday after next, which I think is <coughs> August 26th. As far as I know, um, that's on a Saturday at 1 p.m. at the State Library. Great. Yep. Good work. May it be large. Thanks, crew. Very okay, good. thank you so much, Rachel. Go green, Thank you. That was Rachel Evans from um, Sydney, and she's a long-term activist in the... Uh, a gay community and has um, involved, been involved in multiple campaigns in support of the gay community and now termed LGBTIQ. Um, so for listeners, um, please look at this issue and if you um, want this campaign to win, 
yeah, you've heard the arguments. Um, make up your mind, and hopefully you'll support the the, the LGBTIQ community who's fought for a long, long time. Mm. Want to go for a break, and then uh, we will um, go on to a few news items. Radio Fun 2017. 3CR Radio for Change. Nine four one nine eight three double seven. 3cr.org.au The best things in life are free But you can give them to the birds and bees I want money 3CR, Radio for Change That's what I want 9419 8377 That's what I want 3cr.org.au That's what I want Radiothon 2017, 3CR, Radio for Change Your love gives me such a thrill but your love won't pay my bills. I want money. That's what I want. That's what I want. That's what I want. And you are on the phone. Okay, welcome back to Green Love Weekly um, for um, Green Love Weekly Radio. For those who are joining us right now, um, this is 3CR. Um, of course, you know that. 855 on AM dial. We are going to have another interview in a few minutes. But before that, um, we had Radiothon um, in late or middle June for 3CR, Radical Radio. And we still haven't had uh, a lot of the money that was promised that has to come in. Um, actually come in and let me make another plea to listeners um, Green Africa Radio needs um, more money we haven't actually met our target it will be um, very helpful to keep the program running and keep it uh, at, you know the, keep the independent and alternate source of information uh, alive it will be very helpful to have your support, and of course, and that means money. And of course, you're aware that every $2 and above um, is tax deductible. So dig deep, and let's complete this last leg of the Radiothon. Um, if you are listening, please um, make a donation. Uh, if you haven't made one, and make sure it's paid up, and do um, nominate Green Life Weekly as... Uh, as um, the program that you want the money to go to, uh, we'll be very grateful. So we will go to another announcement before we go to the next interview. Who are we interviewing? Um, Um, We're interviewing Fred Fontes um, from the Australian Venezuela Solidarity Network to talk about Venezuela. A quick idea and then we go to that one. The Independent and Peaceful Australia Network presents War, Peace and Independence. Keep Australia out of US wars. Amidst an escalating threat of another major war breaking out, this timely conference will be held in Melbourne from the 8th to the 10th of September. The conference will address the struggle against US bases, drone warfare, peace as union business, US political and military influence and much more. For details and bookings, head to ipan.org.au or go to the Independent and Peaceful Australia Network's Facebook page. A 3CR supporter. 
Welcome back to Green Life Radio. And we are on to the next interview. Rather busy with the interviews this morning. And Fred is on the line. And Fred's a long-time commentator on um, Latin America, and particularly Venezuela, where he has lived. And recently uh, spoke at a forum in Melbourne. We had over 80 people attend. Um, morning, Fred. Uh, good morning. You want to turn the volume up? It's very low. Um, should the, I'm not sure. Wait. The computer. So, um, since, since, can you say something, Fred? Just want to check the volume a bit? Yeah, sure. How does that sound? It's That's a bit better. Yep, sure. that fine. Yeah. Thank you for the opportunity as well for speaking. Yeah, welcome. And um, since we heard you speak in Melbourne about the situation when Venezuela, we've had the referendum and there has been huge campaigns against uh, Maduro since then. In fact, it's gotten a lot worse. Um, can you update us um, with what's happening, Fred? Yes, that's right. Actually, well, I, I spoke at the, the public forum in Melbourne, which was on July 29, just, just the day before the uh, elections occurred for the National Constituent Assembly. And it's been extremely interesting to see what has happened uh, both within Venezuela and outside of Venezuela in regards to regional government's responses uh, to those elections. Uh, on that day, despite the, the high level of violence uh, that occurred on that day, and it should be noted that a uh, some 200 voting centres were essentially uh, either burnt down or destroyed or shut down by opposition protesters. Uh, and there was also, uh, at last uh, last figure I think I saw, was about uh, 15 dead uh, that occurred that day, making it the most violent day in terms of deaths uh, since the opposition protests have begun uh, in April. Uh, despite that, we saw uh, just over 8 million people uh, turn out to vote for the National Constituent Assembly elections, which is a, a very very strong sign, firstly, of the, the continued presence of, of Chavismo as a political force of the, of the Venezuelan poor, as a movement uh, that, that's been supporting uh, the Maduro government, but also a, a large number of those voters were people essentially casting a protest vote against the, the violence of the opposition uh, over the last few months. The, the, the significance, I think, of, of this vote was that it sent a very clear message to the opposition in Venezuela, that the, the government continues to still, you know, rely on a, a large a large support base uh, within the country, and what this has meant is that since then we've seen a, 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 a relatively dwindling of the street protests. Uh, they haven't um, completely disappeared, but certainly they are much smaller uh, than what we saw prior to the National Constituent uh, Assembly elections. Uh, perhaps reflecting a certain level of demoralisation among some of those sectors. Uh, we've also seen uh, some of the more radical sectors getting more desperate uh, in their attempts to bring down the Maduro government, uh, and most, uh, ex- most uh, perhaps explicitly in the, uh, in the commando-style attack, the terrorist attack that occurred by uh, uh, army deserters and civilians on a military base uh, on, on Sunday, August 8, um, uh, uh, in the city of Valencia. Uh, but what we've also seen is that, by and large, most of the opposition parties who prior to the National Assembly, uh, Constituent Assembly vote, were saying that they uh, were not interested in regional elections, that all they were wanting to see was the end of the Maduro government and for general elections to be held. Uh, have all, almost all of them have now said that they will uh, put, up, put up candidates for the regional elections. And over the last few days has been the days for actually putting in uh, their candidates. Uh, they've been doing so and they'll be contesting the, the December regional elections. So in that sense, it clearly looks as though the... The government, the Chavismo, has, has, has got the upper hand, at least temporarily, uh, in, in, within
win Venezuela. And I think in many ways that explains the, the increased reaction internationally uh, against the government uh, as, as a real sense of trying to put pressure uh, on the government, of trying to bolster the opposition uh, and of trying to make sure that the government can't use this sort of tactical advantage that it's gathered, uh, that it's gained and, and convert that in, into a, a longer victory, uh, particularly in the lead up to the, to the regional elections. Uh, so we've seen regional summits uh, of, of, of presidents in, in Latin America coming out and condemning the Constituent Assembly, and we've seen the U.S. impose a number of more sanctions on Venezuelan state officials, as I said, as an attempt to use pressure from outside uh, to try to impact on and, 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 and shift the correlation of forces within Venezuela. Yeah. Um, I guess my question is, um, you know, after the Constitute um, uh, Assembly elections um, happened, you kind of got some interesting news media, especially for, even from the ABC, um, basically kind of arguing that these um, elections basically give Maduro new dictatorial powers. And I even had a friend from the United States, you know, after this had happened, said, oh, no. Maduro is now a, a dictator, and uh, what is kind of like, you know, the response to that, you know, how you kind of debunk that, because clearly it's not true that these elections give Maduro all these dictatorial powers. It just sounds like a completely ridiculous um, accusation. Well, I mean, f firstly, f you know, firstly, if we were to believe the media, this is, this is probably about the, uh, the eighth or ninth time that uh, Venezuela or Maduro have become a dictatorship. You know, I've always thought if you're a dictatorship or not, you can't just keep becoming one. Um, uh, so that would be the first point. And secondly, if, if this was the case, it's it sort of, I mean, the, the, the best argument against that is the fact that the opposition themselves will be contesting elections at the end of this year and decided to do so just in the last few days again. Not, not something that's very common uh, under a dictatorship. But I think it's, it's largely got to do with the sort of uh, the distortions and the, and, and, and the smoke that the media, uh, put, put the smoke screen that the media raises over this, this constituent assembly. First, firstly, and most simply, any, any ultimate uh, reform or proposal for reform to the constitution that the National Constituent Assembly does will ultimately have to go to a referendum of the people. Uh, so even if we were to imagine that really this was all just a big conspiracy for Maduro to somehow put it into the constitution that he becomes president for life, uh, this would ultimately then have to go to a vote uh, of, of, of the people. Uh, I think that would be very unlikely that such a, a proposal for a dictatorship would get up in a democratic vote. It would certainly be the first time in history, perhaps, that a, that a dictatorship has been voted in. Um, <laughs> yes. so I think that's, that's, that's a, 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 an important point. Secondly, if anything, and, I, and this is, you know, one thing to be noted, that the Constituent Assembly in, in many ways sits above all of the other existing powers, and that includes the President. So if anything, the Constituent Assembly today has more potential powers uh, than what, what the President has. Uh, however, it's been quite clear up until now that really the Constituent Assembly is going to be focused on two things. As I said, uh, the longer-term goal is considering what reforms can be done for the Constitution in order to enshrine many of the important social gains that have occurred, and that's been very clear in a lot of the discussion that's been occurring about how to involve the social missions that have been so important to expanding healthcare and education coverage in the country and making sure that they're putting the Constitution and making, therefore making it much harder for any future government to be able to reverse them or, or get rid of them. And secondly, the, the Constituent Assembly very much and I think this is really its, it's short-term and most immediate uh, uh, tasks. And if it doesn't do this, you know, I think we'll, we'll ultimately see a situation where the opposition once again gets the upper hand and, and goes back on the offensive, is to 
to, to do a dual, dual task of resolving the, the very serious economic crisis that the country's gone through now. And I, and I do not want to understate that, you know, Venezuela is, is, is very much living in a very tragic uh, situation when it comes to the economy. And so very serious measures need to be taken uh, in this regard. And I think the second thing that needs to be done is that a, that a very serious uh, denunciation and exposure of who's been responsible for the violence needs to be done. And the, the, the Constituent Assembly has already set up a truth commission um, that will be, you know, dedicated uh, to, to doing this, to, to, to really establishing more what, what has really happened in the last few months in the country, who's to blame for this violence, and hopefully put an, put an end uh, to this violence, because uh, with, without that, you know, trying to deal with, with some of the more pressing issues becomes almost impossible, and you're, you're faced with essentially a, a situation that could potentially break out into, into some kind of civil war. Mm. Some of the things um, we need to tease out, I guess, you know, one particular thing is I think people don't understand the different levels of government and the processes that are happening in, in um, Venezuela. And it's always a bit of a mystery that there's the Maduro government and then there's um, a power that's um, owned by the right wing and also um, you have the constituent assemblies. So, I mean, in this, in this country you have the lower house, you have the upper house and things get voted in. Whereas in Venezuela it's a different type of organ- organizing of the government. I wonder if you can just quickly explain how the, the different levels of government um, are in place. Sure. Well, look, and, and I think, you know, this, this is part of explaining the, the sort of political turmoil that, that Venezuela is, mm. is living in and which the, the, the media uh, uh, misconstrues uh, because what, what we have is that Maduro himself uh, was elected uh, in elections uh, in 2013 and the, the Venezuelan system is a presidential system. So it's, unlo- it's not like Australia where you elect a parliament and then out of parliament, head of state is elected. There are presidential elections. They occurred in 2013, shortly following the death of former President Hugo Chavez, uh, and Maduro was able to defeat the opposition candidate uh, Enrique Capriles in those elections. He is constitutionally the president until his mandate ends, uh, which will be in the beginning of 2019, meaning that elections have to be held next year, towards the end of next year, mm. and already the Electoral Council said those elections will be going ahead. What has happened since then is that in 2015, what we saw was in the elections for the National Assembly, which is just a, a single chamber uh, parliament, the opposition won a very large majority. Uh, even though the vote itself uh, was not as, as big a margin, uh, what we saw was a vote of roughly 55% to the opposition, 45% to, to Chavismo. They actually obtained 66% of the, the, the seats uh, in parliament and became very clear from the very first day that they were going to use that power in parliament uh, to unconstitutionally remove uh, the president. And it's somewhat akin to what we saw in Brazil uh, just in the last year, where mm. the parliament has used an impeachment case to essentially get rid of a left-wing presidential, uh, left-wing president and impose their own uh, person as, as, as president. The, the difference being, though, is that in Venezuela, the Supreme Court has been on, uh, has, has refused to be part of that, you know, and now, of course, the media has, have therefore accused the Supreme Court of being, uh, you know, simply, uh, is, is, uh, in the pocket of, of the president, although this is never then said in Brazil's case that therefore the Supreme Court must have been uh, in, in the pocket of parliament. So you're seeing this real struggle, you know, between an opposition-controlled national assembly and a, and a, and a Supreme Court and, 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 a, and, a, and a presidency. And, and a lot of the conflict or, is very much disguised in the media. So, for instance, the media talks about the Supreme Court packed by 
government supporters, but it gives no history. It gives no history to the fact that right. this mm. is the same Supreme Court that in 2003 uh, did a ruling. It ruled uh, on, on the question of the April 2002 coup attempt, which you know everyone in the world knows that a coup attempt occurred in April 2002, briefly deposed Chavez, but was defeated. That same Supreme Court ruled that actually no coup had occurred, and so therefore no one could be charged uh, for their involvement in, in that coup. And so it basically gave carte blanche impunity uh, to, to coup plotters in, in that country. You know, so this, this explains why, of course, at that point, the government realised, well, hang on, well, this, this Supreme Court needs to change because it, you know, it's clearly not functioning in, in the interest in the, of the people, you know, not, not even the interest of the government, but the interest of the people if it cannot even define, you know, when a const- you know, understand when a constitution happens. So these kind of things are not explained. Similarly, it's not explained that the National Assembly declared as its objective the removal of the president, mm. uh, even in a context where that's not allowed for in the Constitution. Um, so these, these sort of conf- conflicts within different uh, sort of uh, arms of the state, uh, different wings of the state, uh, also have heightened uh, you know, the, the sort of tension in, in the country today. And, of course, something that the opposition wants to promote and push for in, in the sense of trying to create a kind of a, a vacuum of power of a rupture of the constitutional order. And within that also comes in the, the National Constituent Assembly, which, in, 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 you know, on paper or, you know, in reality, actually is, is a power that sits above all of them. As I said before, it sits above the President, it sits above the National Assembly, it sits above the Supreme Court, it sits above the, the Public Prosecution's Office, uh, hence why it's, it's had the power to be able to remove the Attorney General uh, because of uh, her role of, of crimes of omission. Um, and this, this, this Constituent Assembly... Uh, whilst recognised within the constitution, is, is now coming under serious attack internationally of trying to delegitimise the saying that it, it won't recognise um, that body, which is essentially a body of trying to see if we can have some national dialogue uh, and bring back some kind of stability and order, uh, institutional order to the country. So there are actually different, there are three different arms of, of power in this thing. You've got the constituent assembly, and then you've got the national assembly, and then you've got the president. Yeah, well, that's right. Well, the national assembly, you know, despite uh, you know, as the media has tried to portray it, has not been dissolved. The National Assembly uh, is remains. Still um, it, it, it still meets. Um, its, its limits have been curtailed, and this is over an ongoing battle that it's had with the, with the Supreme Court, which essentially has to do with the fact that there are three deputies uh, who have been found to have been uh, elected uh, fraudulently. Um, uh, new elections need to be held in order, therefore, and those three have to step aside. Uh, the opposition originally agreed to that, but subsequently reinserted those three parliamentarians into parliament. And therefore, the Supreme Court has said, well, look, as long as you continue to session with three illegitimate parliamentarians, then your decisions are, are null and void. Of course, this is a situation that could be easier to resolve. The opposition could simply remove them from parliament. But they prefer to be able to uh, present themselves as a victim of, of, of institutional abuse uh, by saying that, look, oh, they're not letting us make decisions. Uh, when, when clearly the, 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 the assembly could be making those decisions, it simply has to abide by a, a ruling, which even they agreed with in terms of uh, that that fraud had occurred, electoral fraud had occurred with the, the election of these, these three deputies, and hence, as I said, initially were set aside, um, but have subsequently been incorporated. Um, so that's that's an unresolved uh, tension that that, that remains. Now, I just wanted to ask you something about, there was a a Latin American um, organization that has um, placed, I think, economic sanctions on on Venezuela. I I fail to remember the name of the organization um, since the uh, referendum on, um, on the National Constituent Assembly. 
And, of course, the Trump administration has also reacted. Um, I just wonder if, if you can go into, you know, given the, the economic um, situation in, in uh, Venezuela since, um, well, over the last few years where uh, we keep, they keep saying, oh, the oil money has run out, blah, blah, blah. But I think it's more than that, and you've explained that um, in terms of how the uh, the ruling class has withheld um, resources to the people. And I'm just wondering if the joint actions of this Latin American Association and um, Trump, it's going to worsen the economic situation in Venezuela, the first thing, and also the farming sector in Venezuela. You know, um, can you talk about that in, in how, what, what role it is playing in the economy, if any, any at all? Look, in, in terms of the sanctions, I think it would be fair to say that to date, um, the sanctions that the Trump administration have imposed would have very minimal, if any, direct impact on the broader Venezuelan economy. Uh, they are very targeted sanctions, uh, directed at specific, uh, state officials and generally refer to any assets or bank accounts or anything that they may have in, in US, in US banks. So it's, it's very targeted individual, individual sanctions. Uh, although the administration has said that it is studying broader economic sanctions, and in particular in the question of the oil industry, which definitely would have uh, a much bigger impact in terms of the ordinary sort of lives of, of, of people in Venezuela, would in fact, you know, arguably would have an absolutely devastating impact on on, on Venezuelan people. And I think is why, um, you know, even opposition groups within Venezuela and, and opposition-aligned sort of human rights groups, uh, uh, NGOs, have, have been pressuring the U.S. to, to avoid those kind of sanctions uh, just because of the effect that, that, it, that it would have uh, on, on the Venezuelan economy. So, so the, the, the current sanctions are pro- probably uh, are limited in, in, the, the, in the impact, in the economic impact they have, but of course they have a, a very strong political impact uh, and a part of sort of trying to isolate uh, Venezuela. In terms of Latin American organisations, I'm not aware of any specific organization that has applied sanctions uh, to Venezuela. In mm. fact, in, in the, the main organization being the Organization of American States, uh, whilst uh, uh, sort of right-wing governments have continually tried to pursue resolutions against Venezuela, they've constantly been unable to, to, to uh, reach a majority vote uh, in order to pass these resolutions. Hence why just a few days ago they had a, essentially a, just a summit of, of those anti-Venezuela governments uh, in, in Peru. They certainly issued a very stern... Um, uh, declaration against Venezuela, uh, but I, I don't think it, 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 at this point in time specifically mentioned uh, any sanctions uh, that it would impose. Although I, I imagine that some of the right-wing governments, uh, particularly Mexico and Colombia, are already considering how they can help bolster those U.S. individual sanctions. How they can also perhaps freeze assets that anyone, any of these officials may may have in in, in these other countries. So of course, then the question lies to be asked: Is well, do, do these officials even have any of these assets? Uh, in the in the other countries, and the, certainly the U.S. hasn't put forward any real evidence that that they're, that they're seizing huge amounts of assets from from any. any so it's more official. sort of propaganda value, isn't it? Well, the, yes, yeah, it, it, and, and and political pressure, political pressure, obviously of on course, on, yeah. on the government and and on you know hopefully perhaps trying to find those sectors who want to avoid being in that situation. You know, the, the sanctions also apply to questions of visas as well, not being able to obtain visas to visit the US or, you know, those, those kind of things as well. So they're certainly trying to perhaps uh, see if they can use these as the sanctions as a wedge against perhaps more softer sections in the government to try to win, win them over to the opposition as well. 
in terms of the in terms of the farming sector, I mean, the, you know, the, the farming sector has for a long time historically been very tiny, or almost non-existent in Venezuela, just, just simply because the, the the logic created by the oil industry, the oil economy, mm. being that you know we we sell oil and we can with that money we can just import everything. Yeah. Um, so so what we've seen over the last few decades is you know huge transfer of you know migration from the countryside uh, you know into the seas. Of course, prior to oil, there was a strong you know, rural economy, farming economy, yeah. but that's, you know, that's sort of subsequent. Bit. What we've seen over the last few years under the Chavez and Maduro is, 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 is a slight improvement uh, in, in the production in, in the countryside. Uh, the problem is that it has not in any way been able to keep up with the massive rise that there has been in consumption. Uh, and that's, that's been a real, real challenge for the yeah. government. And it's one, not the main, but it's only one of the explanations of, of, of the shortages uh, is the fact that, you know, today... Uh, you know, or over the last 20 years, uh, Venezuelans, their purchasing power has dramatically increased, uh, and their ability to buy more, uh, including food, has, has dramatically increased, but the, the ability to supply that uh, just hasn't been able to, to be matched, uh, yeah. particularly from simply domestic production. Yeah, Fred, just want to interrupt you there. Um, we're running out of time, but I now want to take, just um, ask a question. This will be a question that, where we can basically wrap up the interview. Um, going away from Venezuela and going to here, um, to Australia, in terms of Want to um, hear, you know, what what is kind of happening in terms of the Venezuela solidarity movement, um, such as you know the support from unions. Um, and I'll just uh, mention that Melbourne, we had a rally last Saturday, and probably got like ten people. It was pretty small. It was just actually eight to ten people holding a banner. Um, but the good news about it was there was no presence of the Venezuelan right wing. Yeah, look. Obviously, given the, the very serious situation uh, that's occurring in Venezuela, that you know, what we're seeing is uh, an important uh, beginnings of a revival of, of Venezuela uh, solidarity here in, in Australia, and that's been through a combination of, of public meetings and, and protests, uh, like the ones that we've had in Melbourne recently, but they've you know, been held in Sydney, Brisbane, Newcastle, uh, Perth, and in fact, there's another one happening in Perth in, uh, in, in a couple of weeks' time. Uh, combined with uh, a push to get um, other organisations on board to pass resolutions uh, in solidarity with Venezuela. And one of the important ones has been in the trade union movement where we've been able to have uh, the Sydney branch of the Maritime Union of Australia uh, together with the, the Victorian branch of the Construction, Forestry, Mining, Energy Union and the WA uh, Construction uh, Union as well uh, to all come out with statements in, in support of Venezuela. And I think... Yeah, this, we really need to continue to build that solidarity. I, I think it's, 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 it's a positive thing from our side that uh, until now the Australian government has not really made a statement on Venezuela. I think I wouldn't be surprised if there has been pressure on the Australian government to actually come out, for instance, and not recognise uh, the, the, the constituent assembly or to come out and you know, condemn the Venezuelan government. But to date, the government hasn't done that. And that, from our viewpoint, that, that's, that's a positive thing. Of course, we would want it to come out and actually, you know, express its recognition of, of the Constituent Assembly and, and support a, a, a peaceful, you know, uh, dialogue within the country as a way to, to resolve the crisis. But, uh, but we don't expect uh, to, to, too much, uh, uh, perhaps, uh, we, we don't want to set out, um, you know, expect too much from, from the, current, uh, the current government uh, here in Australia. What, what we're really requiring is, is really to building that grassroots solidarity in the community and making sure that, the government knows that if it was to make any of these kind of, uh, you know, uh, uh, anti-democratic statements towards Venezuela, uh, that there would be a, a, a community response. So, really, want to encourage people to 
to do that in, in their workplaces if they can pass motion and stuff, uh, if they can have information sharing means is really important given such a huge media war against Venezuela. And of course, then letting the people in Venezuela know about the events that we hold here is also really important for them to know that they're not alone in, in, in this battle, uh, which is really a battle at the moment to just restore some, 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 some order and stability and peace, peace to the country. And I think that's what the majority of, of Venezuelans want. Um, but you know, it's something that unfortunately there are, there are forces that are will do do anything that these deems necessary, no matter how much violence, no, no matter if it means a foreign military intervention, in order to, to get rid of what, what is a democratically elected government in Venezuela. Mm. Uh, thank you so much, um, Frank, that very comprehensive. Um, we'll keep an eye on, on what's happening and maybe come back to you later on just to catch up again maybe in a few weeks, see how it all, which way it turns out. But thank you for being available so early in the morning. No worries. Thank you for the opportunity. Thanks, Fred. Thanks, Fred. Bye. That was Fred Fernandez from Sydney, who is an activist and um, someone who's kept up with political events in uh, South America, and he's lived in Venezuela in the past, and he writes for Green Left Weekly as well. Um, Now, we want to go on to an article that I'm very... I know it's only about three minutes before the activist calendar, but very quickly want to point out to readers, which is something you might enjoy. Um, it's about a rose by any other name, why the gig economy is just rebranded piecework. Um, just touching on, on some of the issues that this article is, is that, Middle age, a uh, middle age, middle page, um, spread. It's an article by Richard Men, um, McEnroe. And Richard McEnroe is a Melbourne based writer. Is basically, you know, how these companies kind of get away with this kind of rebranding is it kind of, it's a very ideological thing. And, you know, part of the big advertisement of, say, Uber, Deliveroo, <laughs> yes. um, is so on. Part of this is they have this, there's this term called be your own boss. Oh, God. Um, so basically... <laughs> Work <they>, from home. <laughs> um, so basically, they're kind of like, you know, they're getting people sucked in through this kind of neoliberal kind of ideology. Individual, oh, it's individual. the individualized, yeah. individualization. Yet at the same time, I think, just to give a perspective of a young person, um, you know, where we, you know, just have it available where there's just lots of casual work Uber and Deliveroo actually provide this kind of thing where, you know, they basically kind of turn out to be supplementary income to our current kind of primary job, which is usually casual. Um, and, you know, that's, that's actually kind of ridiculous kind of notion because basically what is happening to this idea of having a permanent job with good pay, good hours, well, good hours and set hours. <laughs> Basically, young people these days, especially, have to work like a one casual job at a supermarket, or they have to, and and then they use Deliveroo as like a bit of a supplement to the, to that to the income, just so they can pay the rent or for pay for the cost of the living, or maybe maybe some young people work Deliveroo or Fedora or Uber just to get some extra income to you know to enjoy some of the pleasures in life. It's just completely. As workers, they are. Independent contractors who are actually seen as business people who have a contract with these larger organizations. Therefore, they don't have sick leave, they don't have um, holiday pay, they don't have, they have to have their own vehicle and equipment, and they only get paid for 
the actual delivery of the food. Jacob yeah. smiling. He knows all about this. And this I have seen in the past in the clothing industry. Mm. So you had women working in homes. They had to have their own machine. Could be, you know, one of my friends was, was one of those, and she, the machine cost twelve thousand mm. dollars. And then they will be given a certain number of clothing, and they will they will be paid according to the, each number of pieces of clothing they can put together. Um, at the end of the day, um, she was paid like eighty cents to sew a sweat, sweater, you know. And and, and only yesterday, um, I, I bought, not yesterday, two days ago, went shopping, and and um, a hoodie costs about you know anything from sixty to hundred dollars, mm. and I'm thinking. Thinking. This is the sort of work, this modern so-called gig economy, which is really piecework, yep. and it's 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 an excellent article, and anyone should should just mm. get a hold of the paper and read this because mm. it explains in detail um, the rewording, reconceptualizing um, the whole industry, and it's really. Mm. Repackaging, really, yep. isn't it? Yeah. One one thing I'd like to say, a final point, and. Yep. It's, so, yeah, but it's but all just quickly before we move on to the activist calendar, I just want to read a, a quick paragraph from this article, which I think is, is, is in, in a way it's amusing, but it's also very sad. Um, while we wait for the regulators to catch up, we should at least begin to call out the inherent injustices of the gig economy for workers. We need to expose the gaming of the system and language the sharks hide behind like flexibility, choice, neither of which will pay the rent, feed the kids, or put shoes on your feet. You cannot eat flexibility, and choice will not help you save for your retirement. So that was a uh, was really good explanation about how they, they repackage the language to the benefit of the, of the bosses. Mm. But anyway... Hey, just we'll just play a quick announcement, um, and then we'll go on to the activist calendar. Are you interested in philanthropy? Do you want to be a major philanthropist? Well, I can help you. Donate to the 3CR Radio Fund. Get a legal, legitimate tax deduction by listening to your favourite radical program on Community Radio 3CR. Ring now nine four one nine. 8377. Tell your friends, tell your rich and powerful friends, you too are a rich and powerful philanthropist. Ring now, 94198377. Don't use the telephone, a bit passe. Well, go to 3cr.org.au. This is your chance to keep 3CR on air and get a legal, legitimate tax deduction. Donate now. Yes, and donate to Green Left Weekly Radio. We still need to meet the target. Um, so please dig deep and try and uh, give us some money to keep Green Left Radio on air and 3CR on air, really. Um, and nominate Green Left Weekly Radio as the program you're donating for, as we still need to reach our target. And thank you very much for those who have already paid. Um, and those who haven't paid, please, um, co- you know, make sure you pay the amount you have promised. And we really need some fresh donations as well. And thanks a lot. And we will move on to the activist calendar, Jacob. Okay. So um, in terms of the activist calendar, um, we there is going to be apparently, if you live in Geelong, and I think there's 
probably people here who live in Victoria, um, outside Melbourne, um, to this program. There is going to be a public meeting um, hosted by Green Left Weekly on the rise of the new right, um, and that's at 5.30pm um, at the Activist Centre Bookshop in the Trades Hall, 127 Myer Street in Geelong. What and date is that on? Today. <laughs> oh, okay, sorry. Um, and now on Saturday, the August the 12th, um, there'll be the Melbourne Anarchist Book Fair happening from 10am to 6pm, Brunswick Town Hall, 233 Sydney Road. Um, just to give a bit more information, it's actually a bit more than just a book fair. Um, some The anarchist community have kind of told me that they like this idea of calling something a book fair because it sounds less, um, less you know, basically more accessible than, say, coin something a conference. But it is actually almost, in addition to being a book fair, basically a conference because okay. there is going to be a number of workshops and sessions um, happening throughout. Um, they're going to be either held at the Brunswick Town Hall or the site work, which is sort of just right next to um, the Brunswick Town Hall on Saxon Street. Um, so there'll be, like, sessions on intersectionality, which will be presented by Celeste Little, um, kind of well-known Aboriginal feminist activist, and also... Um, kind of like, you know, different kind of sessions on anarchist kind of ideas. So, yeah, mm. it's going to be more than just a book fair. Um, but there will be there will be books. <laughs> <laughs> okay, 13th of August, Sunday, to the 19th of August, there's film screening, I Am Not a Negro, with help from Samuel L. Jackson, L. Jackson Haitian, I think that's eight role author, I think, Raoul Peck, Peck, delivers a stirring Oscar-nominated portrait of a writer, of the writer, Civil rights activist and queer icon James Baldwin and his lifelong fight against racial and sexual injustice. And that's at the Comedy Theatre, 240 Exhibition Street um, in the city, of course. And there's also a Facebook posting if you want to have a look at more details. And on the same day, we've got (coughs) a fundraiser for Justice for Elijah. Less than a year ago, um, this 14-year-old Elijah... Doherty was um, stalked, ran down and killed, an innocent victim of race-hate crime. Join us for Elijah Doherty's um, fundraiser for his mum and family, 5 to 10 p.m. at um, Bella Union, Level 1, Trades Hall, South Carlton, and that's the corner of Ligon and Victoria Parade. You want yeah. to take the next one? Okay, so um, just a, just a one thing about the I Am Not a Negro film screening. Um, most of the tickets are actually already sold out for those film screenings. You have to sh- check out the Melbourne International Film Festival website um, because it's been screened as part of the Melbourne International Film Festival. Um, but there are sometimes tickets, you know, getting sold. So you go, um, so just check it out. Um, now on. On Thursday, August the 17th, um, there's actually going to be an interesting art gallery opening happening. Um, it's called Expedition Homes. It's a, basically a collection do- documenting the architecture and residence of public housing in northern Melbourne. And, you know, come along to support and empower residents of public housing whose homes are soon to be demolished. Um, there'll be speakers and live music, and that's happening from 6 to 10 p.m. at the Collingwood Gallery, just right near FreeCR, uh, well, 10-minute walk from Free CR, um, 292 Smith Street in Collingwood. Um, now, f- and actually, on the 15th of August, Friday, which is um, 
Uh, no, no, it's from the Tuesday, 15th of August to 18th of August. That's a film screening, Inside Menace, Hidden Behind a Media Blackout, The Imprisonment of Asylum Seekers. And that be- this is becoming more poignant and really important because of the death of one of the um, detainees there. And I think they, they, they had a vigil yesterday or day before on... Um, uh, for the for that and, and the discussions on about how people are being um, tortured in this in this place and this is a result of one of those um, things and there's post-mortem yet to be done at Port Mosby and please um, support this film and and come and find out more about what's happening. Yep. Um, so the next announcement is um, the Radical Ideas Conference, um, um, which is basically what we're going to be talking about. It's happening f- um, very soon with um, the next, uh, next interview. Um, it's going to be happening from August 18th to Sunday, the August 20th, um, at the Electronical Shreds Building 200 Arden Street in North Melbourne. Melbourne will hold up talking about any further details about it, um, but you know, for the agenda, you can go to www.radicalideasconference.com. Okay. Um, while Jacob's getting the next um, guest on the phone, um, there's another announcement. August 19th is a film screening, Ballyball, and many people may remember this um, from the 70s. Uh, this film was released in 2009, the 10th anniversary of East Timor's independence. It's an extraordinary political thriller about the true events surrounding the execution of five journalists during Indonesian incursions in East Timor in 1975. It's at 1.30 p.m. at the Kino, 45 Collins Street, um, and you need to get the bookings in. Um, okay, now we're running into different dates here. Um, August 26th, we have, it's a Saturday, there's a protest, fair go for migrants, stop Dutton citizen bill, Lift the freeze on citizenship applications. So that is happening at Parliament House at 2 p.m. So please be there to support the refugees and the, the horrendous problems they're going through. And there's also a public meeting on climate change and what different factions of the climate change activism and how do they come together in cohesive action. And a green, the climate change deadlock. And indigenous climate activists... Amelia Telford discusses the current state of climate change activism and where it's heading. It's a free event. No bookings required. It's at 11.30 at the ACME, the Cube, the Federation Square um, in the city, of course. On, and um, we shall leave the remainder of the um, calendar next week because we're going into very late August. We can do more next week. So shall we go into the interview, uh, Jacob? All right. Yep, we can. Um, so on the line we have um, Zebedee Parks. Um, he is the national co-convener of Resistance Young Socialist Alliance um, and is such one of the main organisers of the upcoming Radical Ideas Conference. Um, he's also an international award-winning filmmaker. He's, yes! <laughs> um, he's um, done, he's a filmmaker, he's like a filmmaker and media person who works full-time for the Green Left Weekly. Um, so he, you know, he writes a lot of the refugee articles we read out on, and also, and also um, has made a film, My Friends in Detention, which is the one he's won international awards for. Yes, amazing. And he will be presenting that film at the Radical Ideas Conference um, for listeners' information. All right, so good morning, Zeb. Good morning, Jacob. 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 Good morning, Jac
Good morning, Jason. All right. So, what can you tell us um, about the about the Radical Ideas Conference and what is kind of like you know the political context for which this conference is being held? Well, the conference is happening a week and a half in Melbourne, and we're really excited about it because it's happening in a world that's both in turmoil and facing a lot of challenges, but where young people are rising up. Like we saw last year, a lot of young people get engaged in the Bernie Sanders campaign in the US, and then we've been seeing that also happening in Brisbane in the Jeremy Corbyn campaign, where many, many thousands and thousands of young people have been getting engaged, not just in radical politics and radical ideas, but actually looking for solutions and getting engaged in socialist politics as well as different campaigns, for instance, refugee rights and climate change action and feminism. And so we're really excited that one of our speakers coming is from Britain, who's coming to speak about the Jeremy Corbyn campaign. Exciting. campaign. Um, so um, what can you tell us a bit more about the agenda? What kind of sessions and workshops um, are going to be featured at this conference? We're really excited. We're having a session about young people fighting for our future. We're having sessions on women's rights. We're having sessions on Aboriginal rights and campaigns. We're having sessions on refugee rights. So there's going to be a whole range of great sessions. We're taking up campaigns from campaign against the Adani Carmichael coal mine, to refugee rights campaigns, to feminist campaigns. We've got speakers such as Celeste Little coming to speak. We've got speakers as well talking about questions around anti-poverty activism. We've got Paz Fagwani from the Adelaide Anti-Poverty Action Network, which has been doing great work there, coming to speak about the campaign they've been running there. And we've got a whole range of other campaigns that are engaging in both Campaigns with people engaged in day-to-day campaigns, but also people looking towards another world and where to next. So we've also got speakers mm. looking at, for instance, the Russian Revolution, been 100 years today. Zem, mm. uh, so why do you think this is an important conference? I think this conference is really important because the world is at a crisis at the moment. It's at a crisis with climate change. It's at a crisis with... We're seeing Australia's refugee policy. We're at a crisis in so many ways. But we're also seeing a lot of people rising up against it and fighting for change as well. And it's really important that we have these discussions to both unite these different ideas that people have about how to make the world and actually look at how do we move forward together and how do we unite to fight for a better world. Okay, I guess one um, question, um, something that you haven't, um, I want to sort of ask you to talk a bit more about the Sunday sessions regarding refugee rights, because from my understanding, you're going to be doing a session on that Sunday morning, um, but there'll also be another session following that, a panel um, on, re- on, you know, from on barbed wire waters from the US to Australia, and talk a bit more about what those sessions are going to be discussing. I think we're doing a session... Yep, on Sunday morning with Ravi, who's a friend of mine who was in, he spent time in detention in Nauru Detention Centre before getting released to Australia. He's a refugee artist and poet. And so in that session, we're going to be looking at how art's been used both to connect people in Australia with people in detention and build that campaign and break down those barriers in that sense. And then we've got a panel which we're calling Tearing Down Their Barbed Wire Borders, which we're featuring an activist from the US called Justin Akers who's going to be speaking about the refugee campaign in the US and the campaign against Trump's immigration ban and the wall that Trump's building. So that'll be really important. And especially looking at tying in how the world is at this point where we've seen countries like Australia and Europe and the US are building a against people coming and seeking asylum and how do we build, I guess, worldwide resistance to that for a world that does welcome people.
Hmm. I guess um, there's some other kind of um, things uh, um, happening at the conference. Um, can you tell us about the about the art gallery that's going to be happening as part of the conference, and also um, the Saturday night performance? Yep. So we're really excited that we're having a Words of Resistance Poetry and Music Night, and we've got a number of exciting local bands. I mean, really excited to have the same boat performing in Ezekiel Ox with poetry from a number of other people who engage in social campaigns, and that's happening on Saturday night at Victoria University, Metro West at 6.30. I'm really excited about that. And we're having an exhibition of radical art, and we're featuring local artist Dan Warman, who's also going to be speaking on a session at 3.30 on the Saturday, 2.30 at 2pm on the Saturday as well about activist art. So I'm really excited to have both that exhibition and I guess another session on how art has been used within social movements, within pulling people into radical ideas and radical politics. Yeah, um, just to add something to that, um, there will also be two other artists featuring, um, Nikki Minnis and um, um, Michelle Banksky. Um, and Michelle is um, actually someone who has been, um, who did a lot of kind of artwork for the East West Link campaign, which is one of those, um, one of one of the strongest campaigns that Melbourne's had in like the past several years, and she, you know, she contributed quite a lot because you know without her, you know, we wouldn't have all these kind of like you know exciting posters and flyers that we use to essentially basically for campaigns to use to promote the campaign. Alright, um, so um, Zeb, um, can you give us sort of any final details about the conference, like how you can book, um, and, you know, basically in kind of final comments. <clears throat> Yep, so really encouraging people to come. The conferences, you can find more information at radicalideasconference.com on the website where you can find the full and updated agenda and you can find booking details there. We're encouraging everyone to come. If you have financial problems, we can help you out as well, so don't let finances be a barrier. That's at the ETU building in North Melbourne. That'll be happening starting on the night of August the 18th, so... If you can come for just one session, that would be really, really brilliant, but we encourage people to come for the whole conference. Yeah. All right. Thanks, um, thanks again, Zebedee. Thank you, Zeb. And the ETU building, what's the address of the ETU building, uh, Jacob? Uh, 200 Arden Street, level 1, 200 Arden Street. Um, so just for listeners' information, it's um, you can get several shrams, like the Route <coughs> 57 from Melbourne Central. I think even the Route 59 goes past it, although if you go take... If you take either the Route 57 or 59, one of them will have to involve a few minutes walk, whereas there's one tram route that's right next Googled. to it. Um, and <laughs> it's also answer. in walking distance of the North Melbourne Station. So if you live on the Craggyburn Upfield or Sunbury Lines, it, it'll be very easy to yeah. get to. That's great. Okay, I'm going to play an ID before we go on to the next item. Yep. All right, and thanks again, Zeb. With discussions thanks, on freedom, Zeb. happiness, knowledge. You're listening to Community Radio. Like some food for thought? Tune in to Radical Philosophy. Evil and rational argument. With words from Hawthorne, Hatman, Jenkins, Hutchinson, Hirsi Ali and Plumwood. So tune in to 3CR Community Radio, 8.55 on your AM dial on Thursday afternoon from 3.30 until 4 o'clock. And let's get radical about philosophy. (laughs) 
The Independent and Peaceful Australia Network presents War, Peace and Independence. Keep Australia out of US wars. Amidst an escalating threat of another major war breaking out, this timely conference will be held in Melbourne from the 8th to the 10th of September. The conference will address the struggle against US bases, drone warfare, peace as union business, US political and military influence and much more. For details and bookings, head to ipan.org.au or go to the Independent and Peaceful Australia Network's Facebook page. A 3CR supporter. Alright, um, so you're listening to Green Left um, Weekly Radio um, and we're getting close to the end of the program but Lali has some news to share from the latest Green Left Weekly. Yes, um, I thought I'll just touch on a couple of um, articles that are interesting in, in this week's um, Green Left Weekly which is um, a cultural dissent section of the paper which we have every week of course and this week it's about Al Gore's convenient infomercial for green capitalism and the book is called An Inconvenient Sequel, Truth to Power um, oh, no, it's a movie actually, it's directed by John Schenk and Bonai I hope I'm pronouncing these names correctly. Pardon me if I'm not. Um, Bonai or Bonnie Cohen is released by Paramount Pictures. And of course he talks about how we can have a soft, a softer approach to capitalism mm-hmm. by um, including green products and using green um you know, uh, ways of of managing uh, waste, for example, and just make it manageable rather than actually changing the fundamental way of how we can uh, sustain the planet in a more substantial way. Yes, Jacob. I think one thing that has to be said, um, and this is mentioned actually in the review, the thing about Al Gore and his films, you know, he's, you know, it doesn't matter whether he the solutions he he proposes are insufficient. It's actually his whole track record is terrible environmentalism. Like, I thought you were going to say he's doing something more progressive than the others. No, no, he's not. He's, his <laughs> he's whole not. track record on environmentalism. So it's like whatever solutions he proposes, it just comes off his hypocrisy because he's never, I, I don't consider him to be, you know, for all the awareness he has raised with the, his original film, and Convenient Truth, he, his, his environmental track record on the environment as a politician is absolutely appalling. Yes. Yes, so I think it'll be interesting to read that and and have some debates around the issue whether you know his proposals are worth following or not, or is that how you solve the issues of climate change? But the other thing I think I want to remind listeners about is 100 years ago, in the aftermath of the defeat of the um, protest movement by workers and soldiers, the Bolsheviks in the Soviet Union, or then Soviet Union, um, responded to the July days setback by calling on people to ignore uh, provocations and expose righteous slanders. And this was the um, starting of the Russian Revolution. And, and of course, it's exciting days. It's very relevant to today's struggles. And it's something I think not many people talk about. <coughs> Excuse me. Um, and people, oh, well, it's in the past. <coughs> Sorry. Um, and it's not relevant today. today. And I think um, we should encourage listeners to rethink that. And even if you read an abridged version or a, a summary of the, the what's happened there, um, it's interesting to see how the workers struggled. They understood what was happening. The overthrowing of the um, the, the czar, the, the, 
the power the workers were able to emanate uh, by solidarity, um, led by people who thought, you know, this state has to respond to the workers. The state has to be taken over by the workers and run by workers. Mm. Um, even today in Spain, there, there, there's, there's a town, and I always forget the name of this town, but where workers actually run four universities and, and factories in the area. It can be done, and it has been done in the past. Um, uh, in this um, setting, in the, the Russian Revolution, the key thing being that Workers can take power, workers can reorganize society, workers can take care of issues that are relevant to the majority of the population and just not for the handful of billionaires who only run the state for uh, the benefit of the rich. And and the understanding that today's politicians, 99.9% of them are actually representatives or salespeople for the capitalist. Mm. The Russian Revolution is, is exactly the opposite. Yep. So I think it's, it's, it's an interesting concept to, to, to look yep. through. But I think, Jacob, I think one of the things with the Russian Revolution is, you know, people kind of like, you know, go on about, you know, when people talk about the Russian Revolution, the thing that people mention is, oh, yes, the failures of St- Stalinism and, yeah, 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 yeah. But mm. I think the initial events of the Russian Revolution, especially the October events yes. that we'll be, um, celebrating is, you know, it is shows that, you know, it gives hope that, you know, another world can be possible. It's Basically, possible, you know, yes. we can have a world where, you know, we can have an uprising of, of, of the people take power away from, you know, the ruling class yes. and give it to the people. <laughs> and, you know, as tragic as the events that followed after the Russian Revolution, we, it never went, you yes. know, all the way. There were yeah. some amazing immediate gains that, you know, happened, you know, mm. giving the power to the Soviets. But people don't also realize that, you know, um, you know, when, the Bolsheviks took power that, you know, they legislated in, you know, um, a lot of things that, you know, improved rights for LGBT That's people, right. which and were then... And women's rights too. And women's rights as well. Of course, a lot of the LGBT rights were rolled back by Stalin for some bizarre reason. And uh, every other right, actually. Yeah. yeah. So, um, but, yeah, they're, they're still... The initial achievements of the Russian Revolution are still an amazing thing to celebrate and, you know, something that, you know, is an inspiration to, you know, radicals all over the world, you know, That's trying right. to fight for and a better world. And for me, the, the thing is that, you know, people will say, oh, no, it's not possible, you know, or don't even think there's something different. Mm. This is the only way to live. The only way to live is by um, following business. Business, the business model is the only model that we can live by. is is a concept that's promoted and hammered into you know several generations of people. Mm. But the Russian Revolution between the 1917 and 1923, when Lenin was turfed out or killed, whatever you may think it is, um, and Stalin took over. Those five years were amazing, inspirational years. Mm. And it, it's nice to read that, you know, people can actually do this. Mm. And, and it empowers you. And it, 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 it makes me feel positive and excited about the fact mm. that these things is possible. You yeah. know, people can actually take power. People can actually run a country, you know, doing the things that benefits majority of the people and not just a handful of people. Anyway, time's yeah. moving on. We better yeah. wrap up. Uh, BZ is waiting outside. Yeah. <laughs> and um, just a note is that, you know, the Russian Revolution actually served as a lot inspiration for a lot of other revolutions that followed, especially right. in the third world. Yes. And, and, and let's let's thank the guests we had today. Yeah. Rachel Evans from Sydney, who is an LGBT activist, a long-time uh, activist. Zeb, uh, who just uh, we spoke to, who is a, um, he's a photographer 
cinematographer, isn't he? And he's war, and he's a filmmaker. Filmmaker and, and works for Grand Lafayette. International, international award winner uh, for one of his films. And we also talked to um, Fred Fuente. I can never pronounce his uh, surname properly. Apologies yeah. for that. About an update on the Venezuelan situation since the referendum. I hope listeners enjoyed the program today. And as usual, you know that it's um, available on podcast and I'll make sure it's done uh, tomorrow and uh, thank you for listening and keep that donation in mind we still have to meet that target and uh, thanks to all those who have already donated and see you next week this brings us to the end of the show you have been listening to Friday Morning Breakfast with Green Left Radio brought to you by the Green Left Weekly Newspaper, which provides a weekly source of alternative information which aims to inspire action to put people and the environment first. If you would like to subscribe to the newspaper and get it delivered to your door, you can do so by visiting the website at greenleft.org.au or call 1800 206. For new subscribers, it is only $10 for the first six issues. Three pieces of the show and interviews are podcasts on our homepage on the 3CR website. Thank you for listening. You are tuned into 3CR Community Radio, 855 Digital on the AM dial and streaming live on 3cr.org.